Wimpole! The splendors and miseries of an old Bailey hack. Some cases of Horace Rumpole, barrister at law, as told to and written down by John Mortimer. With Maurice Denham as Rumpole and Margot Boyd as Hilda. Rumpole and the Dear Departed. Let's talk of graves, of worms and epitaphs, make dust our paper, and with rainy eyes write sorrow on the bosom of the earth. Let's choose executors and talk of wills, and yet not so, for what can we bequeath save our deposed bodies to the ground? Yes, let's choose executors and talk of wills, and yet not so, for besides having nothing to bequeath, Rumpole knows almost nothing about the law of probate. As I told Miss Beasley, the heavyweight, grey-haired matron of a nursing home on the peaceful Sussex coast, when she came to consult me about the testamentary affairs of the late Colonel Ollard, I know very little indeed on the subject of wills. Never you mind, Mr Rumpole. The late Colonel wanted you to act in this case most particularly. Mm. He has mentioned your name, sir, on several occasions. Oh, really? Yeah, but, Miss Beasley, dear lady, the late Colonel Bollard... Colonel Ollard, Mr Rumpole, MC, DSO and CBE. Late of the Pines, Balaclava Road, Chevelling-on-Sea and my nursing home. The dear departed. He has come through with your name perfectly clearly and on several occasions. Uh, come through with it, Miss Beasley. That is what I said, Mr Rumpole. We should be alleging fraud against the other side, Mr Rumpole. The person who'd spoken was Mr Pontefract, an elderly type of solicitor with a dusty black jacket and a high, stiff collar. He was someone, I felt sure, who knew all about wills, not to mention graves and worms and epitaphs. Fraud? Ah, now, there is a subject I know something about. And we are alleging fraud against... Mr uh, Percival Ollard. Mrs Percival mm. Ollard. That Marcia, she didn't give a toss for the Colonel. And young Peter Ollard, their son, aged 13 years, represented by his parents as guardian. The Colonel thought Peter was a complete sissy, Mr Rumpole. Mm. The boy didn't give a toss for military history. He was more interested in ballet dancing. The young Peter, it appears, had ambitions to enter a school of dance. Oh, you should have heard <laughs> Colonel Ollard on the subject. Yes, I can well imagine... Uh, Mr. Pontefract, just remind me of the story. I asked to be reminded because, owing to the pressure of a rather enjoyable little murder, I hadn't read the papers. Colonel and Percival Ollard were both wealthy men. Percival Ollard started a firm known as Ollard's Kitchen Utensils, which prospered exceedingly. During the last five years, the brothers never met. And Colonel Ollard, who was an invalid... It was his heart let him down, Mr Rumpole, his poor old ticker. Yeah. Colonel Ollard was nursed devotedly by Miss Beasley at her nursing home. Oh, he was a real old sport, was the Colonel. Often had my incurable ladies in a roar. <laughs> Quite a schoolboy at heart, Mr Rumpole. When the Colonel died, all we could find was a will he made in 1970, under which his estate would be inherited by his brother Percival, his sister-in-law Marcia, and his nephew Peter. The ballet dancer. Exactly. In equal shares, after a small legacy to an old batman. Of course, their wills are forgery. But I, I thought you said it was a fraud. A fraud and a forgery. Concocted by the Percival Allards. <laughs> I begin to scent conspiracy. Yes, I see it all. You, you know... Even though it's only a probate action, I do detect a comforting smell of crime about this case. Tell me, Miss Beasley. Yes? Where do you think the Colonel should have left 
Uh, how much was it, did you say, Mr. Pontefract? Um, with the value of the pines when we sell it, I would say something over a half a million pounds, Mr. Rumpel. Well, half a million nicker. A crock of gold that might even tempt Rumpel into the dreaded precincts of the Chancery Division. Uh, Miss Beasley, where, where do you think that the late Colonel should have deposited the boodle when he departed this life? Well, of course, no doubt about it. To the person who looked after him in his declining years. Ah, to your good self. I was beginning to get the drift of this consultation. Exactly. What I have told Miss Beasley is she has no locus standi. Uh, oh, has she not? Miss Beasley is in no way related to the late Colonel. In absolutely no way. Miss Beasley insisted we saw you, Mr. Rumpole. But you've only confirmed my own views. Legally, we haven't got a leg to stand on. Well, we'll jolly well have to find one, won't we, Mr. Rumpole? <laughs> I won't keep you any longer. I'll be in touch just as soon as we find that leg you're looking for. The matron stood up in a businesslike way. I felt as though I'd been ordered a couple of tranquilizers in a blanket bath. And not to fuss, because she'd be round with Doctor in the morning. Oh, just one thing, Miss Beasley. Yes. Uh, you say the late Colonel recommended me as a sound legal advisor. He did indeed. He was mentioning your name only last week. Uh, last week? Mm hmm. But, Miss Beasley, I understand the Colonel Hollard departed this life almost six months ago. Oh, yes, Mr. Rumpole. That's when he died, not when he was speaking to me. Uh, uh, oh, you want to watch that cold, Mr. Rumpole? It could turn into something nasty. <laughs> Rumpole, mm. that's the third time you've taken your temperature this evening. Well, what is it? Mm. Uh, uh, it's sunk down to normal, Hilda. I must be fading away. Well, I hope you'll stay in the warm tomorrow. Mm. I, I can't do that. I've got to get down to the bailey. The jury are coming back in my murder tomorrow. <laughs> I'd better be in at the dead. That's what you will be in at. If you must go traipsing down to the old bailey, don't expect me to feel sorry for you. Oh, of course not, Hilda. I'd never expect that. Oh, blood. Hello? Hello? Is that Mr. Rumpole's residence? Yes. Uh, this is Mrs. Rumpole. Oh, this is Rosemary Beasley. I'd like to speak to Mr. Rumpole, please. Well, he seems to be at his last gasp. It's for you, Rumpole. Mm. A Rosemary Beasley. Oh, God. Uh, uh, hello, hello uh, Miss Beasley. Horace Rumpole here. What can I do for you? Mr. Rumpole, I am sitting here at my planchette. At your what? Sometimes I use the board or the wine glass or the cards. Sometimes I have direct communication. Oh, that must be nice for you, Miss Beasley. What, what are you talking about? Tonight I'm at the planchette. I've just had such a nice chat with Colonel Ollard. With the late Colonel Ollard? He wasn't late at all. He came through bang on time. It was just nine o'clock when we started chatting. He says the weather over there is absolutely beautiful. It's just not fair, I told him, when we're going through this dreary cold spell. Uh, Miss Beasley, did Colonel Hard come over from the dead, as I understand it, simply to chatter to you about the weather? Oh, no, Mr Rumpole, I shouldn't be telephoning you if that were all. He said something far more important. Oh, did he? And can you let me into the secret? He said that Mr Pontefract had never looked in the tin box where he kept his dress uniform in the loft at the Pines. 
Well, suppose Mr. Pontefract never has. And if he did, the colonel told me he would find, wrapped in tissue paper between the sword and the trousers, a later will signed by Colonel Ollard. It was just as she told us, Mr. Rumpole. Mm. There was a tin box under a pile of old blankets in the loft at the Pines, which we'd overlooked. In it was the full-dress uniform of a colonel of the Royal Dorset. And between the sword and the trousers? A will, mm. apparently duly executed, dated the 1st of March, 1974. Yeah. Over four years after the other will in favour of the Percy Ollars. Exactly. It revokes all previous wills and leaves his entire estate to... Miss Rosemary Beasley. You've guessed it, Mr. Rumpel. <laughs> he didn't need great powers of divination. Well, I know you're accustomed to polite civil law, and my mind turns as naturally to crime as a vicar's daughter does to sex, but... You suspect this will may be a forgery? That thought had crossed your mind also. Of course, Mr. Rumpel. There's no field of endeavour in which human nature sinks to a lower depth than in the matter of wills. Mm. Your average old Bailey case, Mr. Rumpole, must seem like a day out with the church brigade compared to the skullduggery which surrounds the simplest last will and testament. <laughs> I began to warm to this man, Pontefract. Naturally, my first thought was that our client, Miss Beasley, had invented this uh, supernatural conversation in order to direct our attention to a will which she had, shall we say, um, manufactured. Mm. A neutral term, Mr. Pontefract. That was my first thought also. So I had the precaution of having this newfound will examined by a well-known handwriting expert. It is undoubtedly the genuine signature of the late colonel. Ah. The Percival Ollards are attacking this second will, however. On the grounds of fraud? Improperly obtained while the deceased was of unsound mind. Ah. As I told you, human nature sinks to an astonishing depth in will cases. Uh, Mr. Pontefract... Hmm? A terrible thought occurs to me. Yes, Mr. Rumpole. Will the deceased gentleman be giving us any more directions as to the conduct of this probate action from beyond the grave before we arrive in the Chancery Division? Rum sort of place, the Chancery Division, full of dusty old men breaking trusts and elegant young men winding up companies. They speak a different language entirely in the Chancery Division. And their will cases are full of dependent relatives' revocation and testamentary capacity and the nice construction of the word money. As I rose to my hind legs in the court of chancery, I felt like some rustic reveller who's blundered into a convocation of bishops engaged in silent prayer. <laughs> May it please you, my lord. In this case, I appear for the plaintiff, Miss... Rosemary Beasley, who is putting forward the last will of a fine old soldier, Colonel Ollard. The defendants, Mr. and Mrs. Percival Ollard and Master Peter Ollard, are represented by my learned friend, Mr. Guthrie Featherstone, QC. It was true. The smooth-talking and diplomatic head of our chambers had collared the brief against Rumpole. Never at home in the rough and tumble of a nice murder. I thought that the Chancery Division was just the place for Guthrie Featherstone, QCMB. My lord, my client, Miss Beasley, is the matron and presiding angel of a small nursing home on the Sussex coast. There, she devotedly nursed this retired warrior, Colonel Ollard, and was the comfort and cheer of his declining years. <coughs> Mr. Justice Venables, the Chancery judge, was giving a chill stare over the top of his half-glasses. Here was a judge who appeared to be distinctly unmoved by the Rumpole oratory. Declining years during which his only brother, Percival, 
and Percival's wife, Marcia, never troubled across the door of the home to give five minutes of cheer to the old gentleman. And Master Peter Ollard was far too busy cashing the postal orders the Colonel sent him to even send a Christmas card to his elderly uncle. Oh, blow, blow, thou winter wild. Thou art not so unkind as man's ingratitude. Mr. Rumpole. Uh, my lord. I think perhaps you need reminding that jury box is empty. I looked at it. His chancery lordship was right. The twelve puzzled and honest citizens picked off the street at random were conspicuous by their absence. <sighs> this was one of those occasions strange to Rumpole, a trial by judge alone. It is therefore, Mr. Rumpole, not an occasion for emotional appeals. Perhaps it would be more useful if you gave me some relevant dates and a comparison of the two wills? Yes, certainly, my lord. By his true last will, the 1st of March, 1974, the late Colonel recognised the care of a devoted matron... Just the facts, Mr Rumpole, just mm. give me the plain facts. Uh, and the plain fact is, under the previous will of the 15th of February, 1970, the Percival Ollards had managed to scoop the pool. And finally, matron, what did you think of the deceased? He had his little ways, of course, but he was always a perfect gentleman. Mm. And what did you call each other, for instance? It was always Matron and Colonel Ollard. Yes. Uh, Miss Beasley, during the time that Colonel Ollard was with you, did Mr Percival Ollard visit him at all? I think he came over once or twice in the first couple of weeks. Mm. Uh, once he took the Colonel for a run on the Duns, I think, and a tea out. But after that? Oh, no, he never came at all. Mm. And his family, his wife, Marcia, and the young Nijinsky. The young what, Mr Rumpo? Uh, Master Peter Ollard, my lord, a lad with a taste for the ballet. Oh, no, I never saw them at all. Yes. Thank you. Ah. Uh, just wait there a moment, will you, Miss Beasley? Oh, yes. <laughs> Miss Beasley... <laughs> You say that Colonel Allard had his little ways. Yeah, he did, yes. For breakfast, for example, did the Colonel dislike rashers of bacon, which were more than exactly four inches long? He disliked a lot of things, Mr Featherstone, including young boys who indulged in ballet lessons. Just answer the questions, Miss Beasley. Try not to score points off the other side. Oh, dear. I don't think his lordship is exactly warm to matey. And did he measure his bacon to make sure it was the correct length? Mm, seems a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Did you say something, Mr Rumpole? Oh, I just wondered, my lord. Does the fact that a man measures his bacon mean that he's not entitled to dispose of his property exactly as he likes? Mm, Mr Rumpole, your turn will come later. Mr Guthrie Featherstone is cross-examining. In the Chancery Division, we consider it improper to interrupt a cross-examination unless there's a good reason to do so. Ah, if your lordship pleases. As a rank outsider, I am, of course, delighted to get your lordship's instructions on the mysteries of the Chancery Division. <laughs> I suppose his lordship thinks that down the Old Bailey we interrupt opponents by winking at the jury and singing sea shanties. Let me ask you something else, Matron. Colonel Allard had fought, had he not, at the Battle of Anzio? That was where he won his military cross. Ah, and did he tell you that he had frequently discussed the Battle of Anzio with the Prime Minister, the late Sir Winston Churchill? I know that Sir Winston was always interested in Colonel Ollard's view of the war, yes. And that he had also discussed it with Field Marshal Lord Montgomery of Avonage. Colonel Ollard called him Bernard. Oh, really. And with the then Soviet leader, Mr. Stalin. 
did Colonel Allard call him Joseph? No, he always called him Mr. Stalin. Ah, very respectful, if I may say so. Oh, please, Featherstone, don't try and make her funny. You know he told a nurse one morning last October that he had been talking to Sir Winston, Lord Montgomery and Mr. Stalin the evening before. Does that surprise you? No. Miss Beasley, you say it doesn't surprise you? Not in the least, my lord. Now, oh, come on, Judge, don't interrupt the cross-examination. We don't do that sort of thing in the Chancery Division. This nurse will also tell us that Colonel Allard told her that he had been chatting to Alexander the Great, the Emperor Napoleon and the late Duke of Wellington. Well, of course he would, you know. He would? Ah, because he was suffering from mental instability, you mean? Oh, of course not. The Colonel had as much mental stability as you or I, Mr. Featherstone. Uh, speak for yourself, Miss Beasley. <laughs> oh, very funny, Featherstone. What a talent. You ought to go on the music halls. So, why did you say that the Colonel would speak to those gentlemen? Because they were all keenly interested in his subject. Which was? Military matters. Ah, military matters, yes, of course. But all the names I have mentioned, Churchill and Montgomery, Wellington and Napoleon, Stalin and Alexander the Great, they're all dead, aren't they, Matron? Yes, indeed. But that wouldn't have worried the Colonel. He was most sympathetic to people who were ill. Being dead wouldn't have put him off at all. But did the Colonel think he could talk to those deceased gentlemen? Oh, yes, of course he could. You really believe that, Miss Beasley? Oh, dear, oh, dear, me, my first day out for years in the Chancery Division and we're going down the drain. You could talk to the Emperor Napoleon, my lord, if you were a believer. A believer, Miss Beasley? In communication with the other side. And both you and Colonel Allard were believers? Oh, yes. We had that much in common. Can you communicate with the late Joseph Stalin, Miss Beasley? Of course I could. But uh, let's just say that I wouldn't care to. Perhaps not. But can you communicate, for instance, with the late Colonel Allard? Yes, indeed. When did you last do so, Miss Beasley? Yesterday evening, my lord. Oh, dear. Oh, my ears and whiskers. And I may say that the colonel is very distressed about this case, my lord. Very distressed indeed. In fact, he thinks it's a disgraceful thing. When he'd made his will perfectly clear and left it in his uniform box. Uh, I wouldn't like to tell you, my lord, the things that the colonel had to say about his brother Percy. I think you would better not, Miss Beasley. That would be hearsay evidence. We shall have to wait and see whether my learned friend Mr. Rumpole calls the deceased gentleman as a witness. Oh, hilarious, Featherstone. Very hilarious. My God, you're working well today. We, that is matron, Mr. Pontefract himself, at luncheon in the crypt under the law courts in the Strand. A sepulchral place where, it seemed, very old place and ships came to die. Miss Beasley's legal team were not in an optimistic mood. The judge doesn't like you all that much, I'm afraid, Miss Beasley. Never mind, Mr. Rumpel. The feeling is entirely mutual. If you take my advice, Miss Beasley, mm. you should go for a settlement. Save what we can from the wreckage. You see, once you had to admit that the late Colonel used to talk to the Emperor Napoleon... Well, what's wrong with talking to the Emperor Napoleon? He can be quite charming when he puts his mind to it. No, oh, Mr. Pontefract is right. The time has come to chuck in the towel on the best terms we can manage. Oh, you mean surrender? Mm. Well, on terms, Miss oh, Beasley. Colonel Allard will never surrender. 
Anyway, you haven't cross-examined that wretched Percy Ollard yet. The colonel says Mr. Rumpel's a great cross-examiner. Most very kind of He him, says Mr. that he'll never forget reading your cross-examination about the bloodstains in the Penge bungalow murders. He read every word of it in the Sunday paper. My dear lady, that was 35 years ago. Bless you. Anyway, I had a jury to play on in that case. I'm at my best with a jury. This is a cold-blooded trial in the Chancery Division by Judge alone. The Colonel says Mr. Rumpel will hit my brother Percy for six. Mm, a trial without a jury is like an operation without anaesthetic. Or luncheon without a glass of wine. Shall we drown this old fish, Pontegrat? My old darling, in a sea of cooking claret. <laughs> oh, the angel of death is brushing me with his wings. Oh, Rumpel, the doctor has told you it's only a cold. Dr. McClintock gave me a warning on the subject of death. Oh, oh heavens. That's never the front doorbell at this time of night. Well, if it's not, it's a remarkably good imitation. <laughs> Yes? I'm Rosemary Beasley. Is your husband in? Well, I can see him. There. I'm afraid he's in his dressing gown. He's got a bit of a chill. A bit of a chill? I, I'm dying. Oh, it's you, Miss Beasley. Well, don't die well, yet, Mr. Rumpel. You've got our case to win. Don't you think I could conduct it perfectly well from beyond the grave? Oh, now you're teasing me. Your husband's the most terrible tease, Mrs. Rumpel. Mm. Listen to this, Mr. Rumpel. The colonel says that he has an urgent message for you. He'll huh? deliver it here tonight, so I brought the ball. The what? Uh, the planchette. To my dismay, Matron then produced from a kind of black plastic hold-all a small heart-shaped board on casters which she plonked on our dining table. There was paper fixed on the board, and as Miss Beasley held a pencil poised over it, the board began to move in a curious fashion, causing writing to appear on the paper. It seemed illegible to me, but Miss Beasley deciphered some rather cheeky communications from a later, no doubt, unlamented Red Indian chief, who finally agreed to fetch Colonel Allard to the planchette. Tearing himself away from the Emperor Napoleon, the Colonel issued his orders for the day. Hello there, Rumpole. Hmm? Well, answer him, Rumpole. Be polite. Uh, oh, uh, uh, hello there, Colonel. It's very blue here, Rumpole. Oh, really? And I am very happy. Uh, oh, good. Tomorrow you will cross-examine my brother, Percival. Uh, well, I hope to, but I, I'm not fe... <laughs> Quite up to snuff. Brace up, Rumpel. No malingering. Mm. Tomorrow you will cross-examine my brother in court. Uh, yes, Colonel, I... I've... Ask him what we said to each other when he visited me in the nursing home and he drove me up to the downs. Mm? Ask him what the conversation was when we had cream tea together at the Bider Wee Tea Rooms. Ask that question, Rumpole. It's an order. Mr. Percival Ollard, were you on good terms with your brother before he went into the nursing home? Extremely good terms. Mm. Two weeks after he went into the nursing home, you took him for a drive on the downs? 
I did, yes. You shared tea, scones and clotted creep at the Bide-a-Wee Cafe? Yes, we did. And talked? We talked, yes. And after that conversation, you and your brother never met or spoke to each other again? No, we never did. And he made a will cutting out your family and leaving all his considerable property to my clan, Miss Beasley? Uh, he made an alleged will, Mr. Rampol. Oh, if that's what you called it in the Chancery Division, uh, yes, my lord. Now, what I have to ask you, Mr. Percival Allard, is simply this. What did you and your brother say to each other at the Bide-a-Wee Café? My lord, uh, need I answer that question? Mr. Rumpole, do you press the question? Uh, my lord, I do. Then it is relevant and you must answer it, Mr. Roller. My lord... But I, I see the time. You may give us your answer after luncheon, Mr. Percival Ollard. Shall we say two o'clock? That bloody judge has let the witness off the hook. Ah, Rumpo. Uh, Can I have a word? Before we go back into court. Featherstone, has your cloud thought of his answer? He's thought of his answer to this case. Oh, what's that? We're tucking in the sponge. Hmm? Our hands are up. We surrender. Matron can have her precious will. We offer no further evidence. Oh, really, Featherstone? You could have knocked me down with a chancery brief, but I tried to sound nonchalant. Oh, that's uh, very satisfactory. Ah, I say, Rumpole, a fellow must be certain of his fee. You'll let me have my costs out of the estate, won't you? Well, I suppose so. I, I'd better just check. With your client? Oh, no, with the dear departed. As the defendants now raise no objection, I pronounce for the will of the 1st of March in favour of Miss Beasley. All parties will have their costs out of the estate. Thanks most awfully, Mr. Rumpel. Mm. The Colonel knew you'd pull it off and hit them for six. Uh, Miss Beasley, uh, may I call you Bateley? Please. What's the truth of it? What did the brothers say to each other over the scones of Darjeeling? How would I know, Mr. Rumpel? Only the Colonel and his brother know that. As a matter of fact, I found out as I was walking back to Chambers with my ex-opponent, Guthrie Featherstone. No reason why you shouldn't know, Rumpo. Your client had been Percival's mistress for years. Well, his what? Girlfriend. Well, it seems odd somehow calling a stout elderly woman a girlfriend. And are you trying to tell me intimacy actually took place? Regularly, apparently. On a Wednesday, matron's afternoon off. <laughs> when the colonel went into the home, she dived into bed with him and deserted Percival meeting at the tea room was when the colonel told his brother all about it and said he meant to leave his money to Rosemary Beasley. But why couldn't your client have told us that? His wife, Rumpo. His wife, Marcia. She's a battle axe and there would have been hell to pay if she found out, so we had to settle. Well, well, Featherstone. Matron the femme fatale. <laughs> I never have believed it. <laughs> what did I believe? That the colonel spoke from the grave? Or the matron used him because the vital question caused her deep embarrassment. <laughs> All I know is I don't fancy the idea of it over there. <laughs> I shouldn't care for long chats with Colonel Allard and the Emperor Napoleon, even if Joseph Stalin were to be of the party. <laughs> oh. 
dying, as far as Rumpole is concerned, has been postponed indefinitely. <laughs> That was Morris Denham as Rumpole, Margot Boyd as Hilda, and Michael Spice as Guthrie Featherston in The Dear Departed. Mr. Justice Venables was played by Peter Pratt, Mr. Pontefract, Preston Lockwood, Percival Ollard, Martin Friend, and Rosemary Beasley, Jill Balkan. Rumpole and The Dear Departed was written by John Mortimer and directed by Ian Cottrell.